Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. He is risen. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There are many who do not believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some who profess even to be believers who call themselves Christians. How in the world could this be? You know, Christopher Hitchens, I mentioned him a couple of times, one of the new atheists, passed away a few years ago, I think 2014. About three or four years before he passed away, he was in Portland, Oregon, and he was going to be at the concert hall for, I think, a debate. And one of the ministers there in town in Portland, retired minister, did an interview with him that was broadcast, and I'm not going to reveal the minister's name for good reason, you will see in a moment. And they had this interchange. Now think about this, a minister of a church in Portland who is a supposed follower of Christ and an avowed atheist. He is there in Portland to propagate his message of atheism and materialism. This minister then began the interview by saying this, the religion you cite in your book, and the book is God is Not Great. The religion that you uh, cite in your book is generally fundamentalist in faith, a certain kind. In other words, you're, you're, you're talking about fundamentalist Christians, right? Well, I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement, that is, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction, uh, Mr. Hitchens, between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? To which Hitchens replied, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and I would say that if you don't believe that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, then you're really not, in a meaningful sense, a Christian. Wow. <laughs> and then, in responding to another question by this minister, he went on to say, Paul, from which we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul says very clearly that it, if it is not true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we the Christians are of all people the most unhappy. If none of that's true, and you, speaking to the ministers, and you seem to say that it isn't, I have no quarrel with you. You're not going to come to my door trying to convince me, nor are you going to try to get a tax break from the government, nor are you going to try to have my children taught these things in school. If all Christians were like you, I wouldn't need to have to write my book. To which the minister responded, well, probably not. 
because I agree with almost everything you say, but I still consider myself a Christian and a person of faith. Wow. And then Hitchens, who was known for his barbs, said, faith in what? Faith in the resurrection? And then the minister responded, I believe no one, I believe one can go from death in this life in the sense of being dead to the world and dead to other people, and they can go to a resurrection of new life in this life. When I preach about Easter and the resurrection, it's in a metaphorical sense. Metaphors may be fine, folks, but metaphors do not extract you from difficulties in life. Similes may be super, but similes do not save. If, in fact, Christ is preached that he is raised from the dead, then why is it that some of you say there is no resurrection? You know, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is very personal, and it is very literal. They got into a further discussion about the difference between fundamentalist Christianity and liberal Christianity. To believe in the fundamentals of the faith does not mean one is a fundamentalist. That's an entirely different thing. I stand here, and I would pray that you do too with me, that we believe in those fundamentals of the faith. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ was and is literally true. It's a very personal thing. This minister went on to talk about God, and she said, well, really, in that sense, I'm rather an agnostic. Uh, I, I believe in God, but not personal God. I don't believe in God like Father. God is like a force. Friends, we believe in personal God. God our Father. God who loves us. God who loves you and me, and God who loves us so much that he did what? He gave his what? Only begotten son. And he came and he died on a cross and he was resurrected so that we might have resurrected an eternal life. We believe that literally. You know, most major non-theistic religions are philosophical systems. They are not belief systems in personal God. Uh, only the theistic faiths that we have talked about focus on personal God. That is Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. There are five major religions. There are two more beyond that that, in fact, focus their religious beliefs on the founding of one person. And those include also Confucianism and Buddhism. But Christianity is the only one. Christ's followers are the only ones who say that the entire legitimacy of their faith is grounded in one person and its human founder, and that is Jesus Christ. And of all of those five religions that I mentioned just a moment ago, Christianity is the only one whose founder not only died, but was resurrected. In Judaism, Abraham died somewhere around, we don't know exactly, 2000 B.C. at the age of 175. In Confucianism, Confucius died in 479 B.C. at the age of 72. In Buddhism, the founder, Gautama, 
died about 400 BC, we think we're really not sure at about the age of 80. And Muhammad died in 632 AD at the age of 61. They all died, but not a single one of them was resurrected. The importance of the doctrine of the resurrection for Christians is absolutely central and vital. It's vital because of its prophetic fulfillment of Scripture. Psalm 16 and Hosea 6 are very explicit about his being resurrected on the third day. It is important from a prophetic standpoint because Jesus himself said, he predicted on at least six occasions that he not only was going to suffer and die in Jerusalem, but that he was going to be raised again on the third day. It's important because of its theological import, the resurrection. It proves that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Messiah. Theologically, it reminds us that God conquered both sin and death after the cross through the resurrection. It is important theologically because it demonstrates God's power not only to raise his son, but also to raise believers in him. It is important theologically because it provides assurance to us of eternal life. We are going to have a funeral on Saturday. We are going to remember Vern Thompson. But as his body lay, lays here and lies here in front of us uh, on Saturday in the casket, we know that he is not there. We know that he has been resurrected to new life and he is in heaven with our heavenly father in a place prepared for him by our Lord the Christ. It is important because the resurrection is a central, if not the central doctrine that testifies to the truth of our faith and the whole gospel story. The importance of the doctrine of the resurrection cannot be underscored enough. And so we come to the passage of scripture that follows what I opened with, and that is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 12. And Paul reminds us of how important this is. Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 21. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all persons most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. He is risen. Amen. Let's have a seat. You know, there are several challenges that are raised to the doctrine of the resurrection, the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to identify five this morning, and we're going to deal with those as we talk about our response to those that ask for us to give a reasoned response when they ask us to give an ev the evidence for the hope that is in us. Those challenges revolve around these issues. Some say that, that Christ did not die at the cross. It was not he on the cross that died. Some say that the account of the empty tomb is 
errant. It is wrong. Others say that Christ did not, after his death, then appear bodily in a bodily form after the crucifixion. A fourth challenge is that the disciples' accounts are not trustworthy. And that's really included in the fifth challenge, and that is that the biblical accounts are inconsistent and inaccurate. Let's talk about the biblical accounts first, and we'll also talk about the trustworthiness of the disciples at the same time. You know, the New Testament, we would affirm, is the primary source for the doctrine of the resurrection. There's no question about that. Some arguments against the resurrection focus on what some would say, the inauthenticity and the unreliability of Scripture. And we're going to deal with that two weeks from now and three weeks from now. In two sermons, we're going to talk about the authenticity and the reliability of Scripture. So we admit this. The primary accounts are found in Scripture, and we rely on those. But there are four specific challenges about Scripture related to the doctrine of the resurrection that we need to talk about today. They cannot wait for two to three weeks. One of those is that the miracles that are recorded in the Scripture are impossible. Secondly, the accounts are inconsistent or inaccurate. A third challenge against the scriptural reliability is that there have been legends that have been added to the stories about Christ. And then finally, as we said a moment ago, that the disciples' record or accounts are in fact untrustworthy. You know, the first of those, miracles, we've already dealt with that. We dealt with it about a month ago. There are some that say miracles are recorded in Scripture, miracles are impossible. Of course, this is the primary argument of materialists, agnostics, and atheists. Well, we do believe that miracles are possible. Remember we said God is supernatural. He is supernatural creator and sustainer. He intervenes in nature to accomplish his purposes. And the greatest miracles after creation, the two greatest miracles have been the incarnation of his son, whom we call Jesus Christ, and secondly, his resurrection. So those that do not believe scripture do not believe that miracles are possible. We do. Secondly, they say that the accounts are inconsistent. Well, how many accounts are there of the resurrection? There there are eight primary accounts. There are the four that are found in the Gospels. You have the story of the resurrection in all four Gospels. And then in Acts, the ninth chapter, the 22nd chapter, and the 26th chapter. And then again from the chapter that we read this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. There seem to be some apparent inconsistencies in those stories, admittedly. For example, in the Gospels, Mary seems to be the first one that comes to the tomb. But when you read Paul's account, it is Peter who is first. And Matthew and Mark, they speak about one angel at the tomb. They, they speak about an angel. They don't say one, they speak about an angel. And then when you look at Luke and John, very clearly they speak about two angels. So there seem to be some inconsistencies. But the, the, the issue is this. You see, they're, they're spoken, they're recorded from different perspectives and about different times after the resurrection. And it's very simple to put these accounts together, see how they harmonize. There is no disagreement. When Matthew and Mark talk about one angel, they simply aren't talking about the other one being there. There are some things that seem to be inconsistencies which are not. In fact, we all know this, that if all of the accounts were exactly identical, then that would suggest that they probably all got together in a committee and colluded The fact that they are somewhat inconsistent suggests to us that those accounts, in fact, are accurate because they're independent accounts, and there are some things that seem to be a little different about them. 
What about the legends that have been added? Well, we dealt with this a couple of weeks ago. It takes about two to three generations for a legend to develop and to be added to a story. All of the gospel accounts are very early accounts. They are so early that there was not enough time for legends to develop. Paul's account that we read from in 1 Corinthians 15 was written, oh, sometime in the early 50s, well within the generation lifetime after the resurrection. And we know that he got his information from the apostles probably about four to five years after the resurrection occurred. The accounts are so early, legends could not have been added to the stories. When we look at the suggestion that the accounts of the disciples, the apostles, were uh, untrustworthy. Some say that they were deceived, that they were mistaken. But the problem with that is we read earlier before the worship service started in the earlier part of 1 Corinthians 15 that there were at least 500 witnesses. How can all 500 of them have been deceived? It is impossible to deceive so many people and not one of them to have, been, have spoken out and recorded it. Some say, well, they all hallucinated, that they were swept up in some kind of religious enthusiasm together. The problem with that is hallucinations are personal. There is no such thing as mass psychosis. If they all hallucinated the same thing at the same time, that would probably be a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. Oh, by the way, that's not my own. That, that, that comes from a book I was reading, so... You know, there's some that say that the uh, disciples, in fact, deceived others themselves. They weren't just deceived. When we look at them, they were simple, devout men. And in fact, all of Jesus' teachings, this would run against all of his ethics and his teachings. It would run against what they stood for. Not only that, in order to force this on those that they would try to deceive, they would have had to steal Jesus' body. And that would have been almost impossible for them to do. Not only that, they were powerless against a religious establishment that could disprove their lies. In fact, who was it that really conspired to lie about the situation? It was the officials who bribed the guards to keep quiet and then to say that the disciples had stolen the body. No, in fact, the disciples were willing to do what? To encounter resistance, to suffer and they were prepared to, and some did die for their proclaiming the resurrection. People are not willingly going to die for a lie. I would suggest to you that the disciples' accounts are trustworthy. A third challenge is that Jesus did not die on the cross. And there are a couple of theories that oppose the idea that Jesus, in fact, died on the cross. One of those is the substitution theory. Over a billion Muslims believe this theory. They're taught this. Uh, most of them believe that, in fact, it was Judas Iscariot that was put on the cross and he died. Some say that God made the person that died on the cross look like Jesus. Well, the response to that is there's no historical evidence for that. That's an ad hoc argument that's just drawn out of thin air. In fact, the Jewish officials had seen Jesus the week before time and time and time again in the temple. They knew who he was. They identified him clearly. His family and friends recognized him on the cross, and they saw him put in the tomb. It also includes God and a great deception, and we know that God not, is not a liar, and he is not the author of lies. The other theory is the swoon theory. They say, well, Jesus was clinically dead, but he was resuscitated. And naturalists would support this position. Atheists would support this position because they do not believe in miracles. Many Muslims believe this theory as a backup to the substitution theory. 
Well, what, how do we respond to that? The spear thrust into Jesus' side. When the blood and the water came out, that was, a, that was a clear sign that he was dead. It ignores the testimony of the centurion who was standing at the foot of the cross and bears witness that this man who has just died was a good man. Not only that, but Romans never took bodies off of crosses until they were dead. And they, in fact, usually broke the bones of the legs before they did to accelerate the death. Not only that, the tomb was sealed and guarded with guards that knew the dead body was in the tomb. And there are secular sources later that confirm his death. In the early 2nd century, the Roman historian Tacitus speaks about the death of Jesus Christ, as also in the 2nd century, the Jewish Talmud speaks of his death, the man who died on the cross. There is a fourth challenge, and that is that the empty tomb, the accounts of the empty tomb are inaccurate, that they're wrong. One of these is a conspiracy theory, that the disciples removed the body and faked his resurrection. Well, in fact, that is exactly what the officials told the guards to lie about, the chief priests and the elders. They then foisted this lie on the populace. Later, deists of the 18th century then held to this conspiracy theory. Well, in fact, that would have been impossible to do. The tomb was cut out of solid rock, and it was covered by a huge stone. It was sealed. It was guarded. And the cohort kept a rotational guard, and they were vigilant. They stayed awake because if they fell asleep on guard duty, what was the punishment for a Roman soldier? It was the death penalty. They were awake. They were awake when the angel then rolled the, the stone away from the tomb. The state of the disciples speaks against this theory, too. Their moral character would be against such an action as stealing and lying. But not only that, look at their reaction after the, after the crucifixion. They were in grief. They were fearful. They were not cool and calm and clever enough to develop such a lie and to foist it on the people. In fact, they were disillusioned and they were defeated. But then look at what happened after the resurrection. Look at the change of the attitude. Look at their inspiration, look at their boldness, look at their willingness to suffer. There is a second theory, that the authorities remove the body. Well, why in fact then do we find them telling the guards to lie in Matthew 28, if that is true? Why in fact then if they had stolen the body, why don't they produce the body when the apostles start preaching about the resurrection? Not only that, but we're not sure, but Paul was probably part of the Sanhedrin that then, in fact, listened to the witness of the apostles at this time. Now, you tell me then why later does Paul then write 1 Corinthians 15 if he knew that this was all a lie? There's a third theory, that the body was stolen. Not by the Jewish authorities, we've already disproved that. Not by the disciples, we have already dealt with that. But that Roman officials may have stolen the body. Why? They had nothing to gain. It would have made them look incompetent. Not only that, it would have stirred up the religious leaders and it would have disturbed the peace as, in fact, the message of the resurrection indeed did. There is a fourth theory about the tomb account being inaccurate, that the tomb was not empty. If the tomb was not empty, then why didn't the officials go get the body out of the tomb and produce it to repudiate the apostles' message? Why did the Sanhedrin bribe the soldiers then to say that the apostles had stolen the body? The fact that they did this in Matthew 28 tells us that the tomb, in fact, was empty. Some say that it was the wrong tomb, 
that the women went to the wrong tomb. But they knew where the tomb was because two of them had accompanied Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb and had watched him, in fact, embalm the body. They knew the way. That doesn't explain then when they get to the tomb, and if it's the wrong tomb, why is the angel of the Lord at the wrong tomb? It ignores the rest of the angel's account. You know, they would say, well, the angel said to them, he is not here. And then they fled in fear. It ignores the rest of the message. He is not here. He is risen. Amen. There's another theory that the tomb was never visited. And that is that Christ may have risen in spiritual form, but nobody ever checked the tomb that that the body was still there. In other words, this theory says there was no bodily resurrection. In response to this, there are multiple biblical accounts, eight of them, that the women went to the tomb, that Peter and John went to the tomb, that they saw that it was empty. The guards that were present there, they were shocked when the angel appeared at the tomb. And they reported to the Sanhedrin that the tomb was empty. What did they have to gain from that? Not a single thing. If anything, they should have what? Lied about it. No, in fact, the tomb was empty. And there's a final challenge, and that is that Jesus did not appear bodily after the resurrection. The importance of the bodily resurrection of Christ cannot be underscored. It's evidence of the complete victory by God over death. You see, His body was not abandoned to shale, as it was prophesied in Psalm 16. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the complete victory is not finished until this corruptible has put on what? Incorruption. And this mortality has put on what? Immortality. And it is speaking about the body. You see, this speaks to the complete victory of God over death. It says that it was not just an apparition or a ghostly spirit. The bodily resurrection says this is the actual body of of Jesus who is the Christ, who is still the same identity, who is still the same incarnate person. You see, his body gives evidence of that. The bodily resurrection is a basis for our resurrection. Someday we will be resurrected, and in the end time, we will be bodily before the Lord because of that. The bodily resurrection gives evidence of his full humanity. He was fully God, fully man, and he was raised then in a bodily form, and he ascended in a bodily form, and today he is in bodily form at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, perpetually making intercession for us. As human Jesus Christ, as well as divine human Christ, he makes intercession for we humans, for us humans, who in fact are sinners. It is a basis for his bodily return. Just as he has ascended, someday he will return in the same way. The bodily resurrection of Christ is what Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 15. There are a few theories that challenge this. We've dealt with the hallucination theory. We've dealt with the mistaken identity theory. But there are a couple of others. One of of these is, well, Jesus only had a spiritual body after the resurrection. This denies the bodily resurrection of Christ. It is one of the earliest heresies in the early church. It follows the teachings of docetism. And, of course, that was a basis for Gnosticism. The flesh is bad and the spirit is good. And so Christ did not have a physical body afterward. He only has a physical body now. And John is very clear in his first epistle what that is. He says that is heresy. It is heresy likened to the Antichrist. 
No, in fact, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you must believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. There is a theory called the theophany theory. That is that God destroyed the body of Jesus Christ and he reanimated it into another physical state. That it took on a different form. Very much like the appearances of God in the Old Testament that we call theophanies. In other words, then Jesus appears very much like the angel of the Lord did to Hagar in Genesis the 16th chapter. Or very much like the three divine like men that came to Abram in Genesis 18. Or like the two angels that came then to Lot in Genesis 19. Or maybe like the captain of the host of the Lord that stood there with, with Joshua outside Jericho. What the, the problem with that, folks, is that this is not the G, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. It's just an appearance that seems to be like God. There is biblical evidence, manifold bi biblical evidence, of the bodily resurrection. There are 12 accounts in the New Testament of 10 appearances over 40 days. He appeared to over 500 witnesses. All occasions, on all occasions, he was seen and he was heard. They saw and recognized his face. They heard and recognized his voice. Twice he offered for them to examine his wounds. Four times he offered for them to touch him. And twice we know that they actually physically touched his body. He ate with them. And they went and they saw the tomb. And they saw that the tomb was empty. And they saw that the grave clothes were empty. There is manifold evidence in the New Testament of the bodily resurrection of Christ. So now that we have disposed to some degree with those five arguments, let's come then to the final and I think the most cogent argument. And that is the witness of the church. The witness of the early church. The transformed lives before the resurrection, after the crucifixion, in those almost three days, we see the disciples were fearful. They were doubtful. They were defeated. They were downcast. And after the resurrection, they were fearless. They prayed to, the, to God and the Holy Spirit filled them with boldness, and they preached in that way. They preached boldly the resurrection of Christ. This among the early church, we find to be then the basis of the, what we call the faith. We have faith that we believe in Christ, but we also maintain a faith that is a proclamation of what we believe. And the two things that are the formation of the early church, the kerygma and the didache, focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The kerygma, the preaching of the gospel by the apostles, was foundational the faith of the church. And the other thing, the Didache, the teachings of the apostles, then were foundational. We're going to talk about that tonight in Ephesians, the second chapter, when we talk about the apostles and the prophets being the foundation of the church, with Jesus Christ being the what? The cornerstone. Well, folks, the message of these apostles focused on the resurrection of our Lord, the Christ. You see, this doctrine was central to the formation of the church. It was central to apostolic preaching. It is the focus of, of Peter's preaching at the first uh, message at Pentecost in Acts the second chapter, and then his second sermon in Acts the third chapter. It was the focus of their testimony to the Sanhedrin in Acts the fourth chapter. And then in, later in the, in the fourth chapter, we see that it was with great power that they gave witness. It was great power that they gave witness to what? that they had seen the resurrected Lord, that he was, in fact, risen indeed. In fact, that's what made them apostles. For we find in the first chapter of Acts that in order to be an apostle, one had to have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The testimony of the early church gives powerful evidence to the resurrection of Christ. The church grew quickly. Why did it grow so quickly? Why were 3,000 added to the church immediately after Peter's first sermon? And then they grew daily. And then after the second sermon, a few days later, over 2,000 were added. It was because they believed in the message of the resurrected Lord, even to the point that several priests then were converted to the faith. This growth of the church was due to two things, I believe. It was due to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, empowering the disciples, and it was the preaching of the powerful message of the resurrection. And then the early church continued to grow. They were resisted. They suffered. They died. Jesus said that he was going to make his disciples what? Witnesses. And you know what a witness is. What is the root word for witness? Martyr. You are going to be my martyrs. And you know, because you've heard it several times, Tertullian's famous quote. What was that? Why did the church grow so exponentially in the first three centuries? Because of the witness and the blood of the martyrs. They believed that even though they might die in the arena or wherever it was, even though they might be stoned to death, even though they might be killed, they believed in the resurrected power of Jesus Christ to resurrect them. The blood of the martyrs became the seed and the growth of the church. They believed in the power of the resurrection. And today, God calls you to be martyrs. He calls you to die to self and to be willing to go out into the world and to proclaim fearlessly and boldly when there are those that want to make it a metaphor or a simile, those that want to reduce it to a a nice-sounding mythical story from the Bible, you go forth and boldly proclaim that you believe that your Lord, the Christ, has been resurrected and he is alive indeed. And not just an apparition, not just some kind of ghostly figure, but that he is bodily present with God the Father Almighty making intercession for us. For you see, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus also will raise us up also with Jesus and we will be present with you. So, Saturday when we have the funeral for Vernon, about three weeks from now when we have the funeral for Ann Fricky, the memorial service, we are reminded of this. Just as he was raised, and just as he has the power to raise through the Spirit, he has raised them up, and someday, if the Lord does not come before we depart, he will also, through Christ Jesus, raise us up so that we will not only be with him, but we will be with that whole host of martyrs that have gone before us. I believe that he is risen and that he is risen indeed. And why was that necessary? Because each one of us is a sinner. Not a single one of us deserves even to live, much less live beyond the portal of death. But God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that could only be accomplished by his gaining victory over both sin and death so that we someday might be able to put on immortality and incorruptibility. And that's what we celebrate.
That's what we celebrate at every memorial service and every funeral of a believer who has gone to be with the Lord. And my message to you that are listening this morning is if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he is not a myth, he is not just a nice story from an ancient document, he is living Lord who invites you to come into eternity with him by accepting him as your Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that the resurrection of your son Jesus Christ has power that you have defeated sin on the cross, that you have nailed sin to the cross and put it to death, and that you gained victory over death through the power of eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you did not leave in the grave, whom you did not consign to shale, but that you raised up and you have also glorified him. And we live in the expectation that he will return again. Even so, Lord, come. In the meantime, may we go forth and boldly proclaim that he is living Lord. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.